this time our kids are dismissed for Children's Church, and what we're trying to do every once in a while is give an opportunity for Lauren to be in the service and just uh, actually have to listen to me. It's actually punishment that we have instilled upon her to have to sit in the service and listen to me. Uh, but no, actually, Nick and Macy are doing Children's Church this morning, so kid, you go on down there with them. You'll have a lesson there. Lauren's going to hang out in here with us uh, this week, and um, that's that. The rest of us, we're going to turn our attention to the life of Christ. We just finished up talking about Jesus in the Old Testament and how all of the prophets predicted all of the things that Jesus would be, who he was, so on and so forth, and we ended with the birth of Christ and, and how he came into the world and all of the prophecies that predicted that. Today we start a brand new series that we're calling The Life of Christ from Birth to Resurrection. And in its Man of the Millennium issue, Time Magazine had this to say. Think back to Y2K, 1999, all that good stuff. This is what Time Magazine said some 20 plus years ago. The memory of any stretch of years eventually resolves to a list of names. And one of the useful ways of recalling the past two millenniums is by listing the people who acquired great power. Muhammad, Catherine the Great, Marx, Gandhi, Hitler, Roosevelt, Stalin, and Mao come quickly to mind. There's no question that each of those figures changed the lives of millions and evoked responses from worship all the way through to hatred. It would require much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all of human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Not only is the prevalent system of denoting the years based on an erroneous 6th century calculation of the date of his birth, but a serious argument can be made that no one else's life has proved remotely as powerful and enduring as that of Jesus Christ. That's what Time Magazine had to say. Does that shock you just a little bit that they would have that many kind words to say about Jesus? In other words, they recognize, even the skeptic recognizes, that when Jesus came as a child, time was split in two. We, we base our calendars before Christ, B.C., after he came here, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, is what that means. A lot of people think it means after the death of Christ. No, it's Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. If it was after the death of Christ, we're missing 33 years in there. So it's before Christ, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. But why is this important? Why would they think so importantly of Jesus? Why would Time Magazine say that? Why would the, the people in the world back then, why would historians split time in half when Jesus came? Is it just because of the words that he spoke? Was it just because of the period that he lived in? I don't think it's that. I think it's much more than that. Today, as uh, we've mentioned, we're kicking off a brand new series that will take us all the way up to Easter Sunday. And the idea of this series is to take a look at some of the stories in the Gospels. Those are the first four books of the New Testament. We're going to take a look at some of the, the stories in the Bible concerning Jesus' life and how if we look at those stories of his life, we might be able to make his life and his actions a part of our life. If we look at his, the, the way he approached things, the way he lived out his 
his trust in the Father, how he treated other people. There's a bunch of different things we can look at in the life of Jesus and maybe apply them to our lives and maybe draw us closer to who he is and also to maybe win people to him. So the goal of every Christian, I believe, and maybe you disagree with me, but I think the goal of every Christian, at least anyone who claims to be a Christian, should be to become as much like Jesus as we possibly can in everything that we do and say. Would you agree with me on that? That should be our goal. This reminds me of a story about a preacher who had a terminal illness. He became bedfast with this illness and He had a couple of members of his congregation that he called, and he wanted them to be by his bedside. One of them was a politician. One of them worked for the IRS, and they both arrived at the house. They walk into the room, and he's got a seat set up on either side of the bed, and he asked the politician to sit here on his left, and he asked the IRS agent to sit on his right, and they both walk into the room. They sit down, and they sit where he asked them to. They made small talk for a little while and just kind of carried on a conversation. Finally, the politician spoke up and said, Preacher, I had no idea that you cared this much about us, that you wanted the two of us to be here when you passed away. Preacher spoke up and said, Oh, it's not that at all. I was reading in my Bible the other day, and it reminded me of how Jesus died between two thieves, and I just want to be as close to him as much as I can be like him as as possible. All right. You know, that was originally about two lawyers, but I didn't want to hurt Alan's feelings, so uh, um, (laughs) I changed it for you, Alan. He's in the nursery. He's probably watching. I hope he didn't hear it. Don't tell him, guys. Okay, anyway, um, see, here's the deal. I hope that that as we study these words of Jesus, as we look at his life, my hope is to give you some highlights of his life that we can make a part of our own lives so that we can seek to be more like him in everything that we say and everything that we do. Because here's the deal. Jesus' life was not just about being a religious teacher who said some nice things about loving your neighbor and forgiving people and not judging people and all of those other things that he said. Jesus' life, when he lived it here, it had a purpose to it. It's hard for me to imagine Jesus wasting even one moment of his life because he was so purpose-driven to accomplish the Father's will. He knew he only had a few short years to carry out everything that God wanted him to do so that he could impact the world, not just while he walked it, but for all of eternity. I don't know if you've ever walked through the Gospels yourself or not and asking yourself this question, is there anything about the way Jesus lived that I can put into my own life? I hope that you have, and I hope you've tried to do that, and that's the purpose of this next four weeks, is to look at the life of Jesus leading up to the resurrection, the events of his life, to see what we can pour into our own lives to not only make our lives more meaningful, but to draw other people to Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. My intention is not to, to focus on the events so much, like, you know, here's a timeline and follow this and so on and so forth, this is what happened, but rather focus on some principles in how Jesus lived his life that we can place into our own. So, here we go, right? I don't want to look at the surface, I want to look at why he did what he did. I don't want to just look at some of the things, some of the miracles, some of those, those cool stories that we read about and say, oh, those are really cool. I want to, I want to get to the, under the surface and see why he did what he did, right? And so I think if we can get a grasp on these things, it'll go a long way in us reaching our goal and living as much like Jesus as possible. So let's look at that and let's see what we can do. All right, here we go. The very first thing that I think 
the way that he lived his life after he was born. You know, we don't read a lot about his childhood other than the story of how uh, his mom and dad lost him at the temple. Remember that story? And, you know, he's, Mary and Joseph is put in charge of the Son of God and they lost him. No pressure there, right? Uh, and, and, and so um, we, we don't know a whole lot about his younger days. But when he gets to be an adult, we, we see a lot of things that are recorded that I think are going to go a long way in helping us. The first thing is this. Jesus lived his life in the context of eternity. Everything that Jesus did, everything that he was about, everything that was done in his life, he knew that there was more to this life than what we can see. He knew that there was something beyond this life. He knew that we were not meant to be here forever. That this is, we're just aliens passing through. Our citizenship is in another place. And so everything that he did, he lived in the context of eternity. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew from the moment he was able to even think about everything that was going on, when he got to that age of where he was able to put rational thoughts together, he knew that his purpose was to eventually die for our sins, be resurrected from the grave, and then go to sit down at the right hand of God. And it's incredibly important for us to understand that Jesus didn't live just for the moment. He took advantage of every moment, but he didn't just live for the moment. He always had the future in mind. He always had eternity in mind. He knew why he came to earth. He knew what his mission was. He knew what would happen after he finished his mission on this earth. This passage of scripture in Hebrews 12 that we just read a moment ago gives us that perspective on that. He went to the cross willingly. Because he knew that once he accomplished everything that the Father had for him to accomplish, especially paying for our sins, that he would once again return to the glory of heaven. And not only that, he could anticipate that others would share in that glory as well. He was able to see that all of mankind would have the opportunity to share in all of the glory and all of the riches of heaven that he too was experiencing. Jesus knew beforehand, before he ever left heaven, what kind of treatment he was going to receive down here. He knew before he ever said, yeah, Father, I'll do it, um, what was going to happen to him. But he did it. You know? Because he knew that not coming down here and doing it would not fulfill the purposes of God. He had eternity in mind. Everything that he did, even before he left heaven, he had eternity in mind. And the purposes of God are always eternal. And Jesus lived with this purpose in his life, this view of eternity in his life. And we would do well to emulate that. If we were to live our lives, every decision that we made, every, every uh, just basically everything that we do, if we do it in the context of thinking about eternity, it's going to change the way we live our lives. So I guess I need to ask you this morning, is that how you live your life? If it's not, I encourage you to work toward that. To work for living your life in view of eternity instead of just living for today or, or tomorrow or next week. 
And I think what happens a lot of times is a lot of people, they live for the moment because they want to fully experience what they think every day has to offer them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Jesus even said, I've come to give you life and, li- and give it to the fullest. And so some people are just living for the day, trying to live life to the fullest. And that's not all bad to live your life completely, you know, just like that. It's not all bad. It's not, it's not the desired way of the Father. But, but there are some benefits to it. Second, others only live for today because they're afraid of what tomorrow might bring. There's some people who live so much in fear. They're so crippled by fear because they don't know what's coming up. And they, they, they live in these chains. They live in this bondage of, of fear. Besides, they say, Jesus said it himself. Today has enough trouble of its own. So why focus on the troubles of tomorrow? But Jesus said that's not a healthy way to live your life. If you're living your life that, that way, that's not, that's not healthy. Fear of the unknown is not healthy. Because the problem with both of these perspectives, if you're living your life just for today, you're just living for the moment, whether you want to enjoy that moment or whether you're afraid of tomorrow, whatever the case may be, it has a tendency for us to make our lives more self-centered. We become more focused on ourselves when we just live in the day. We become uncaring for others. We become uncaring for the eternal purposes of God. If you want to be fruitful, if you want to be an effective disciple of Jesus, if you want to become as much like him as possible, you need to live understanding that how we live can have an eternal impact, not only on yourself, but on the people around you, the lives that we touch. If people can see that we live for purposes outside of ourselves, makes a difference. But when, when they look around and they see the world is just so selfish, but then they see there's these group of people who call themselves Christians who are not living for themselves, but who are living for other people and for Christ and for the eternal purposes, there's something attractive about that. And people are going to see that and they're going to want to come to know more about who this Jesus is and why you're acting like you're acting. And so the way to do that is to live your life in the context of eternity. And the second way Jesus lived his life is to glorify the Father. Jesus was never about his own agenda. His life was always about doing whatever the Father wanted him to do, even to the point of going to the cross and dying for our sins. And if you really want to get an idea of how big this this deal was for Jesus, you just read the Gospel of John. Jesus, in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus references his father 102 times in the Gospel of John. That's not even counting the the references that other people made to the father, but just the references that Jesus made to his father. 102 times. He was always talking about the father, the father's will, what the father wanted him to accomplish. And here's what it says in chapter 14, verse 31. But the world must learn that I love the father and that I do exactly what my father has commanded me. He said this knowing that just in a few short hours, he's going to be nailed to the cross as a completely innocent man. And he's still willing to do what the Father asked him to do. He said that even in this dark hour, even though my time is short, my love for the Father, my love for the Father's mission for my life is all that matters. Jesus was very concerned that the Father was honored, that the Father was glorified in his life. 
He mentioned that he came from the Father, that his mission was from the Father, that the Father would validate him whenever uh, he whenever he rose him from the grave and then the Bible talks about how one day he's going to come back and every eye will see and every knee will bow, confess, every tongue will confess. And the Father will be glorified and Jesus will be glorified. I think it's very natural again to ask, you living your life like that? Are you living your life to glorify the Father? Are you more interested in your own agenda? You live more for yourself. I think we're all guilty of that at times. I think we're all guilty of, of putting ourselves here ahead of God. But, but if we really want to attract others to Jesus, if we really want to be as much like Jesus as possible, if we really want to make a difference, we've got to start putting our own agendas aside and start looking at the agenda that God has for our lives. Significance of any real measure is found in not living for yourself living for God, adopting his priorities as your priorities, just like Jesus did. Jesus lived to glorify the Father. That's what, our, that's what our lives need to be like as well. Third way Jesus lived that we can learn from and put into our own lives is that Jesus lived his life for the benefit of others. Not only did Jesus live his life for the benefit of the Father and for his will, but he lived his life for the benefit of other people. Jesus undoubtedly was the most selfless person that ever walked the face of the earth in the history of the world. He quite literally did not have a selfish bone in his body. You ever known a selfish person? You like hanging out with a selfish person? You ever been that selfish? No, you don't have to answer that. All right? we, we've all been... We've all been that selfish person on occasions, right? You have, I have, and it's hard to focus on others when we're so focused on ourselves because we got enough stuff going on in our lives and we start to worry about our jobs and we start to worry about our family. We start to worry about our bills. We start worrying about March Madness and stuff like that that don't even matter. And we lose sight of people around us. I heard a story about a mother who was preparing pancakes for her son one morning for breakfast. Kevin was five years old. Ryan was three years old. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Mother saw an opportunity for a great moral lesson. She said, boys, listen. If Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin turns to his younger, Brian, or younger brother, Ryan, and says, you be Jesus. See, (laughs) Jesus wants us to be all about his mission. His mission is from the Father, right? He wants us to be so involved in others' lives, people who don't know God, so that they can come to know him. And I think what happens a lot of times, we get comfortable in our in our, in our holy huddles on Sunday morning and just come within the four walls here and we feel good about being here and then we walk away and we go back to living our lives how we want to live them. And Jesus said, listen, I've I got bigger plans for you than that. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Back up a few chapters earlier, Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three stories about how important lost people are to God. Jesus was on a mission to save lost people, to give them direction, to give them hope, 
to give him forgiveness of sins, to give him a home in heaven. That was his mission. Jesus was always doing things for people. You ever notice that? He wasn't doing things for himself. When he wasn't teaching, he was feeding the masses or he was healing somebody of a disease. He was casting a demon out of someone or he was putting a burr under the religious saddles of of the Pharisees, you know. Because he cared for people. Right? He he cared for people. And we got to... We've got to adopt that type of mindset where we start caring for people. Remember how I said Jesus wanted to fulfill the mission of the Father on earth? Well, he could only do that if he thought that the people were important enough to die for. And that's what he thought. He thought that people were so important, that they mattered so much to God that he was willing to die for them. And they were important enough for him to feed. And they were important enough for him to heal. Or whatever the case may be, he met the needs of those people. So here's the question again. What about you? Are people important to you? Are you willing to work for the sake of other people as much as you are for yourself? Your comforts, are you willing to help others as long as it doesn't cost you anything in terms of your time or your money or your schedule? See, this is something I've had to examine in my own life several different times. And I think I'm better than I was, but I still got a long way to go. Jesus lived for other people. You need to do that as well, so do I. Last way Jesus lived is connected to the fact that Jesus lived for other people, and that is Jesus lived his life to relate to people. It's related to what I said a moment ago. Not only did he live for other people, but he, want, he came to relate to other people. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, for this reason he had to be, he had to be made like them. Stop and focus on that for just a moment. He had the, the only way... He could do what he needed to do. For this reason, he had to be made like them. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? Because Jesus went through this suffering, because Jesus went through this difficult time, he was able to empathize with people who were going through a similar thing. And I think that's sometimes why God allows us to go through difficulty. So that we can comfort other people with the same comfort we've been given when we've gone through that trial. And I think one of the biggest challenges of the church today is to show the world that Jesus is just as relevant today as he was when he walked the earth. Because most people will acknowledge that Jesus lived. Most people will acknowledge that he was at least a great leader and a great teacher. But the church today has to show the world that he's just as relevant today as he was when he walked the earth. Right? How do we do that? The good news of Jesus, the gospel as we call it, is always relevant But the problem is the world sees the church as irrelevant. And so they naturally figure that this Jesus that the church talks about, he was just a figure in history. But that's not the case. Jesus took on human form. He had skin that got cold. 
If he lived in Indiana, he too would probably be saying, really? You know, maybe, I don't know. That's not in the Bible, but I think if you read between the lines, he said that. He had to eat. He had to drink. He had to take a bath. When he was a baby, he had to have his diaper changed or whatever they used back then. I don't know. He was susceptible to sickness. He was human. He faced every temptation that we faced. He knew what it was like to be loved. He knew what it was like to be rejected, even by those who said they loved him. The pain that he suffered on the cross. It wasn't just spiritual pain, even though that was pretty intense and pretty pretty hard. The rejection of the Father. I cannot imagine the pain that that was. But as he bore our sins and was rejected by the Father, he was also being physically mutilated. Scourged. Nails driven through his wrists and his feet. He was fully human and he felt that pain. He was misunderstood and mischaracterized. He was loved and hated all at the same time. And why did he go through that? Why would he do that? Well, one of the reasons stated in this passage of Hebrews that I read a moment ago is so that he could make atonement for our sins. There was no other way that we could be reconciled to the Father. The only way that we could experience the forgiveness of the Father was for Jesus to do what he did for us. But I also think it's so that when we pray, and have you ever been in those moments where you're just so, you're so distraught, that all you can do is cry out to God? You don't even know what to say. But you just cry out to God, help me. When we're going through something hard like that, I think Jesus went through what he went through. The beating and the mischaracterization and being unloved and all of these things so that he could relate to us on a human level. When we're going through something hard, Jesus can say, listen, I know how you feel. I know just how you feel. You know, too often we talk about Jesus and we cloak him in terminology that the average person doesn't understand. We use big churchy words, you know. Uh, just a quiz. How many of you grew up, uh, or let, let, me, let me start differently. How many of you did not grow up in a church like what you're in right now? I mean, just raise your hands, fine, okay. Um, for those of you who did not grow up in a church like what you're worshiping in right now, there's probably words and phrases that have been thrown around, maybe even from up here. For me, maybe uh, in a song, maybe from a communion meditation that we don't understand, right? Uh, I, I've heard, I've used the word, I've heard Mike use the word propitiation. How many of you know what that means? Exactly. I, I had to look it up myself, you know, whenever I'm looking. It means that the sacrifice of Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. So if all of you guys who are sitting here in this church and been going here for all these years don't know what it means, how many of you know what dispensational premillennialism is? Right? I don't think we've ever used that, but I've been in some churches that throw these big words around, these big phrases around, and they do things that don't even have anything really to do with the average person knowing anything about God. 
We start talking about being washed in the blood. You know, to the non-Christian, they don't understand. Even though it's an important truth, we have to preach it. Or, or there was a popular word that was being thrown around in the 70s and 80s, koinonia, which is a great word, you know, but you hear that word koinonia, and you're like, what does that even mean? It's all Greek to me. You're right, it is Greek, right? It's a Greek word for fellowship, having this kindred bond with the family of God, but we throw these words around, you know. If, if we want to communicate to the world who Jesus is in a way that speaks to the hearts of those who are without Jesus. We can't, we can't be speaking on a level that they don't understand. Jesus, when he walked the earth, he communicated with the Jews in a way that the Jews would understand. And he communicated with the Greeks in a way that the Greeks would understand. He, create, he communicated with everyone that he came in, into contact with in a way that they would understand. He didn't clothe himself with a bunch of spiritual sounding words. He didn't. He was holy. He was absolutely perfect. But he didn't act pious and better than you. He communicated plainly and clearly and he related to everyone. He took the initiative to relate to people. He didn't force people to fit a man-made mold of spirituality in order to come to him. Religious leaders did that all the time. And he chastised them for making people fit in this man-made religious kind of stuff. Jesus just invited people to come to him. Just as they were. He'll take care of the rest. And so I urge you, church, to live your lives in a way that you can relate to people. Let the love of Jesus shine through you so that Jesus is more attractive. When we come off all pious and we've got our act together and everything's just great and, you know, we're holy and righteous and sinless and we use big words to try to impress people, we're not doing any good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that this is something we all should be interested in. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. I know that gets confusing, but track with me. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So that I could win as many as possible, basically. That's what Paul was saying. To win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. Paul tried to relate to everyone that he met. Jesus tried to relate to everyone that he met. So that they could come to know him. Sam Walton in the mid-90s was named one of the richest men in America. They say you'd never know it because he's, he, even though he's one of the richest men in America, he drove a, a beat-up old pickup truck everywhere he went, right? And someone asked him one time, says, you're, you're the, one of the richest men in America. Why don't you drive a Rolls Royce or something like that? Why do you drive that old beat-up pickup truck? He said, where would I put my dogs? You know? And he... <laughs> He was successful, at least in part, because he connected with the common man. I mean, he, he was a brilliant businessman as well. But he connected with the common man. And so I urge you to do that, to connect, relate to as many people as possible on their level. But here's the deal. 
And we'll wrap up with this very quickly. Even though Jesus lived 33 years and then died on a cross, he still lived. He came back alive three days later. And there's a few things he's working on now. And that is this. To give us his Holy Spirit. He has promised his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized everyone in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. He's promised to give you a a peace of, of, of God now. He promises to send his Holy Spirit, John 14, 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. The disciples didn't want Jesus to go away, but Jesus said, unless I do go away, I can't send the Holy Spirit. And he sent him on the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us, and he sends him to us still today. He also lives to pray for his people. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Intercede is another fancy church word that we throw around that some people might not understand. It basically means Jesus is praying for you. He prays for us. Isn't that pretty cool when you stop and think about it? That Jesus is praying for us. Remember a little bit ago I said Jesus knows exactly what you're going through because his All the things that he went through on earth. I think that plays a part in how he prays for us. He can say to the father. Father. I know what they're going through. And it's something else. It's hard. It's difficult. He's praying for you like that. Thought of that as just more than. Really I can comprehend. That's, That's pretty awesome. The Bible also tells us that Jesus lives to prepare a place for us. John chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you. He is currently preparing a place for us in heaven. If you have the gift of eternal life that Jesus offers, he's preparing a place for you. If you don't have the gift of eternal life that he offers, then we want to give you the opportunity make that decision today to confess Jesus as the Christ to repent of your sins to be baptized into him for the washing away of your sins and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit so that you can live as much like Jesus as possible Jesus wants to see you in heaven church he wants to see you there For those of you who might be watching online and you've not made that decision, we encourage you to text READY to our church connection number that you're going to see on the screen. Those of you who are here in the service, you can either come forward. You can text that word READY as well. If you'd like to do it that way, we'd reach out to you and we'd love to see you become a part of the body of Christ who not only would be saved to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, that you would see that there's more to this life than what you're doing. That you can live with eternity in mind. You can live for other people. You can be about His mission. You can do your best to relate to other people so that you can take people to heaven with you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. If you have a decision that you need to make today, we encourage you to come. Or maybe you just need to, right where you're at, you just need to spend some time in prayer.
saying, God, help me to get my agenda out of the way. Help me to get my own purposes out of the way and start focusing on what you want for my life. Let's pray together.